0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Politics. Today I'm speaking to Professor Jan Werner Müller. Professor Müller is a political philosopher at Princeton University whose past works include A Dangerous Mind, Carl Schmitt in Post-European Thought, and What is Populism? In his new book, Democracy Rules... Professor Muller asks us to reconsider the first principles of democracy. What does democracy truly entail? And why is democracy desirable in the first place? Along with these questions, he describes how recent political developments have clouded our understanding of democracy's purpose. Jan, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me. First, I'd like to begin by just asking you what drove you to write this book?
0: So, for at least half a decade by now, we've had a very intense discourse about what is often simply referred to as the crisis of democracy. And while that's been important and helpful in many ways, I thought those debates have been flawed, if I might put it bluntly, in two respects. One is that very often it's very unclear what precisely the criteria are for declaring a crisis, and maybe less obviously, very often the kind of diagnoses that colleagues have put forward have focused either on the many, the people. Um, it's now become possible again to say quite unkind things about um, so-called ordinary people in terms of, oh, they're all irrational, they're all of authoritarian inclinations, uh, they're all waiting for the great you know, demagogue to mislead them. Things which are sort of straight out of 19th century Mass psychology, sometimes, which for a long time I think liberals in the widest sense of that term wouldn't have really uttered in polite society, and now that's quite okay, basically. But of course, there's also the other tendency to essentially say, no, no, it's not the many, it's the few, it's elites who are to be who are to be blamed. Uh, there's now a discourse about oligarchy. I mean, a word that you know wasn't really used in contemporary political diagnosis for a very long time, and. I'm not commenting on the on the plausibility of the two diagnoses. All I'm pointing out is that, you know, even though they're so different, you know, one is about the many, the other is about the few. Of course, they do have one thing in common, which is that ultimately they're about groups of people. And I felt it was important to reorient ourselves also towards basically political institutions. And in particular, the question how they are connected to the basic values of democracy. Because while there's also been you know, a number of important contributions on you know, we have to strengthen existing institutions, we have to respect norms and rules and so on, um, I think it might be a mistake to basically say, oh, let's have rules for the sake of rules or you know, anything that we have by way of institutions needs to be preserved. Um, it is important, I think, to dig deeper and sort of pose the question again, how exactly particular institutional elements are really connected to liberty and equality, most important.
1: You begin your book by mentioning a few characters that I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, Viktor Orban, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, Trump, Bolsonaro, perhaps Netanyahu. What is it that these characters have in common and why do you begin the book by discussing them?
0: So there's an entirely legitimate uh, demand to explain What many observers see as a global phenomenon, sometimes abbreviated as, you know, the rise of right-wing populism, rise of, you know, authoritarian populism, and so on. And to me, it seems problematic that very often one has jumped from the observation of significant similarities between these figures that you just mentioned to the notion that, well, their rise must all have the same cause because they look so similar. And one of the propositions in the book is that, yes, the similarities are real. Uh, there is even what I try to call a shared right-wing authoritarian populist art of governance. But it doesn't necessarily follow that there is a sort of single macro cause, be it, you know, just to mention the most cliched candidates, be it, you know, purely economic, purely cultural, mixture of the two, and, and so on, to explain all this. I think the similarities on one level are much better explained by the fact that, that a lot of these actors can learn from each other, and can copy each other, and that I think is is a blow to what I consider to have been a genuine post Cold War illusion. Not that history had ended. I don't believe for a minute that anybody actually ever really uh, believed that, or if they truly believed, uh, you know, believed it, uh, it wasn't really based on what Fukuyama had actually written, and so on. Um, no, it was rather the notion that authoritarians have, if I can put it in a rather highfalutin way, have a kind of epistemic disadvantage. They can't learn from mistakes. uh, They can't admit mistakes. They cut themselves off from information about their own society. Um, A lot of things which, to be fair, now sound plausible again in light of what we're learning about about Putin's, Putin's Russia. So I'm not saying this is a crazy thought or nobody ever should have believed this, but I think it did lead to a certain tendency to underestimate authoritarians and to be rather complacent in thinking that, well, you know, this is sort of going to resolve itself. These uh, regimes all have to end like the Soviet Union in 1991. They can't really learn, you know, and, and, they, and they certainly also can't learn from each other. And I think we have pretty solid evidence that A, they're learning, B, they're learning from each other in particular, and C, while none of this means they're somehow invincible, I'm not saying that, um, nevertheless, we should let go of this tendency to sort of automatically assume a certain kind of superiority of democracy, not in terms of values, uh, where, you know, for me at least, the superiority is not in question, but in terms of capacity for learning, capacity of dealing with, you know, developments in in one's own society, and so on.
1: For these uh, populists, despite the fact that they might be doing certain things that offend the norms of standard liberal democracy, we still don't see a mass mobilization in society and oftentimes with these populist characters uh in the you know mainstream media or in other places people warn about the their tendency towards fascism Uh, what is the problem with equating this brand of populism with fascism
0: so my view is that fascism is necessarily connected to a kind of idealization of combat. There's a suggestion that the best human life is one of mortal danger and warrior-like confrontation. And secondly, that it's also deeply connected to various notions of racism, racial hierarchy, uh, basically a sort of naturally given inequality among human among human beings. Clearly, historians have been disagreeing about, about accounts of fascism for a long time, um, it would be a mistake to think that you know we sort of have a ready made definition that we can simply take off the shelf. Um, like with so many phenomena, it's probably much better to think of family resemblances among different regimes and and characters. But still, it seems to me there are there are reasons to think that the differences ultimately outweigh possible similarities. And uh, at the risk of saying the obvious, there are also deep differences. In terms, of, in terms of historical context. Um, however pessimistic one might be about our present age, it seems to me very hard to make plausible the claim that it sort of really corresponds to many of the circumstances that we saw in the 1920s and 19, 1930s. So that's why I kind of keep my distance from that particular diagnosis, but I hasten to add that this does not mean that, oh, everything's fine or these characters aren't really dangerous. Um, it's not an accident that we've seen a systematic attempt to take countries in which right-wing populists have come to power, in which they have also had enough power, so countervailing forces weren't strong enough, that they've basically taken these countries in a more or less clearly authoritarian direction.
1: So obviously, these authoritarian characters, they have not arisen in a vacuum. And in your first chapter, titled Fake Democracy, uh, you discuss what, what you refer to as, as the double secession. What is the double secession and who is involved?
0: At the very top, it's those who, to put it bluntly, are the most advantaged, uh, the wealthiest, um, those who sometimes may well be called oligarchs of, of one sort or another, who sort of in a strange way both take themselves out of a shared social contract and you can sort of think of of illustrations of this when you think about basically figures who you know have a sort of backup insurance scheme by having property in New Zealand that is kind of apocalypse proof and at the same time and that's really why the the designation oligarch isn't completely crazy at the same time use their enormous resources to manipulate the political system to their to their advantage in one form or or another and at the other end of the income spectrum, you basically have people who are so disadvantaged or sometimes so disappointed by what is on offer by way of po- programs by democratic parties that they basically quit politics, uh, you know this is reflected in rising rates of abstention, uh, no longer really you know wanting to participate, feeling that there's nothing that there's nothing nothing on offer. And clearly, these sorts of developments in a kind of vicious circle can reinforce each other. So if people stop voting, then also parties stop caring about them because, you know, why Why go after these people? Um, and that in turn makes it easier sometimes for others to basically protect their very particular uh, interests and, and and assets. And, you know, I'm not saying that we see this development to exactly the same degree everywhere. But I think it's a it's it's a way of reframing the observation about rising inequality, which you know most people nowadays uh, see as pretty pretty obvious, and connected more particularly to political processes and political systems.
1: Right. So so on one end, you have people that want to exit democracy because it's a check on their ability to do what they like, a la Peter Thiel. Uh, and then on the other end, you have people who are exiting democracy because they feel like it's fake and not ever going to serve their interests. And you you talk about this kind of sense in which the people are divided and uh, they are divided in for a variety of reasons. You I find it actually very refreshing that you offer many different reason, explanations or reasons without giving one specific uh causal explanation. And you talk about how populists tend to take advantage of this division of society. And uh, how is it that populists do this? And what are the outcomes?
0: So maybe in the face of, especially in in the United States, a kind of incessant um, discourse about there should be more civility, and we should heal our divisions and overcome our differences and so on maybe it's worth reminding ourselves that on one level, at least, democracy is not about consensus. Democracy is about divisions and conflict. Question is, what do we do with divisions and conflict? In an ideal scenario, uh, the relevant actors are able to represent and shape conflicts such that they basically are not only compatible with democracy, but ultimately reinforce democracy. I mean, this isn't always sort of so obvious maybe as a, as a thought, um, but there's a long line of social theory that has argued that actually conflict and cohesion are not opposites. If you do conflict the right way, you actually, in the end, might increase cohesion or or, or help with other basic political values, going back at least as far as, as as Machiavelli. Now, but that also means that it has to be conflict in the right kind of way, and I would just for now, stress two elements here, or rather what in the book also I call two hard borders, uh, which conflicts have to observe. One is that within them, you cannot really deny the standing of other citizens. And that, in my view, is exactly what populists always end up doing. They end up saying, we and only we represent what they often call the real people. And some others are at best second-rate citizens or don't truly belong at all to the people. Just to remember how very often Trump reacted to criticisms, not by justifying his policies, you know, which I think any ordinary politician would have done. They would have said, "Look, you know, we're in government. This is what we're doing. We're authorized to do so. Here are the reasons." No, very often the response was simply, "The critic is un-American by definition because they dare to criticize that particular that particular president." So if you do that, you can't really treat the other person engaged in a conflict as an adversary or as a partner, as a partner. You treat them as basically somebody who doesn't belong or even worse as an enemy, as a traitor. So this mechanism of generating cohesion from conflict certainly can't work. And the other border, and I realize this is, you know, very controversial and, you know, can't really be argued in five seconds or so. Uh, And if you have journalists among your listeners, you know, this is also the moment when they break out into hearty laughter. Um, The other sort of hard frontier is simply respecting facts. But if you'd have nothing in common, if, if you tell me, look, I, I think there's nothing going on with the climate. You know, I think this is all totally accidental or you know, even worse, you, you tell me that China made all this up and so on. Um, we're not going to get into a democratic conflict about how to distribute sacrifices and burdens associated with adjusting to different forms of energy consumption and, and so on. So again, the mechanism of conflict in partnership producing cohesion can't really can't really take place so these are some of the reasons why populists are not you know they're not bad because they do conflict you know that in and of itself is not illegitimate uh in fact one of the advantages of democracy is precisely that any of us can start a new conflict and say look here's an issue that nobody's talking about has a group that has been neglected or disadvantaged and we need to kind of foreground this all of that is completely okay and very often beneficial. The problem is if you don't observe these sorts of borders of conflict. Which, last thing I hasten to add, does not mean that now the job of political theory is sort of being a policeman and you know constantly sort of being border normative border police. You know and say, oh, can't do this, can't do that. That's not its only function, of course. But I'm hoping it's a way to specify what more particularly is wrong with this way of doing of doing conflict and getting us away. I hope from this very often, forgive me, kitschy sort of communitarian talk of, you know, politics should be about healing our divisions.
1: In your next chapter after Fake Democracy, uh, it's it's titled Real Democracy. Uh, and you begin this chapter by uh, showcasing three quotes from, from three different people. Uh, Saul Alinsky, the famous leftist organizer and agitator, who certainly embraced and loved conflict. Ralph Ellison, who was a novelist who in his later years tended towards the more conservative side of things, who also seems to embrace a sort of ethic of competition and nonconformity. And then your final quote is from Peter Thiel, where he says, competition is for losers. What is it about competition that is so vital for democracy? And why is it that not having any competition will lead to uh, long, longer-term problems.
0: So I would stress two things. One is that it matters that citizens you know, can truly feel that there are genuine choices in the political system. They should also maybe less obviously feel that democracy enables, uh, to put it more abstractly, the multiplication of representations of different groups but also of different conflicts of issues of ideas identities interests and, and so on if if that's not there you are just going to think of the political system as closed as unresponsive again goes back to the earlier part of our conversation where sometimes people might simply say i'm checking out of this because you know it's never about me or i'm always i'm always always on the losing on the losing side so that's one element but the other, other element um, that I wanted to bring out with these particular quotations was also the importance of losing the right way in the democracy. I think it's fair to say that when I wrote all this, um, it, I thought it was you know a maybe not so obvious point. After the 2020 election, I think it's it's much more straightforward to make this argument because people can see that basically being able to concede, Ideally, even turning a defeat into, you know, the start of a different story of how you might win again, in a way that other politicians have have often done, is absolutely in, indispensable. And if you basically, you know, check out of that game and you don't play that game of being a good loser anymore, it's disastrous for for democracy. And it doesn't require people saying, "Oh, the other side is now right" or anything of that of that sort. Of course not. You can, you should simply be able to say. You know, um, a little bit with, with with the famous Samuel Beckett quote, uh, fail again, fail better. So you're going to have another chance to make the case to citizens that you are doing the right thing, offering the right policies, and, and so on. And in a democracy, there's always going to be another election. So in that sense, um, it also, if I, if I may add one more point, it also points a little bit to the danger of political parties becoming subordinate two individuals because if you turn a party into per, into a personality cult what that among other things means is that unlike an institution like a party which has a long term time horizon and which can basically say we can afford to lose this election and you know we're going to make the next sort of attempt to win in 4 years 5 years whatever uh, we as human beings we don't have infinite time horizons to put it to put it bluntly And if it's only about one person, that changes the parameters of the game. And it again, maybe also illustrates how the kind of situation we've ended up in, in terms of, you know, high levels of partisanship and polarization, and at the same time, a kind of hollowing out or weakness of political parties has disastrous consequences for democracy as a whole.
1: Going off of that note about political parties, you, you really defend these sort of intermediary institutions like parties Uh, And like representative democracy, why is it that we can't have uh, direct democracy? Why do we need these intermediary institutions, in your view?
0: So I'm not in principle against exercises in direct, direct democracy. What I wanted to stress is that as long as we have, broadly speaking, representative democracy as we know it, and it looks like we'll still have it for quite some time, it remains vital that to exercise our basic political and specifically communicative freedoms in an effective way, we do need organizations that multiply our voices. So I can demonstrate all by myself. I can, you know, fill your spam folder with all my unpublished op-ends. But if there are political parties out there, and it doesn't have to always be parties, it can also be trade unions, employer associations, all kinds of other things, um, or for the matter, if there are professional news organizations which are in the business of analysis and opinion formation, that basically makes the exercise of our democratic voices more effective. And in fact, even if you know let's say you you, you think about um, exercises with referendums, these organizations usually don't disappear. Um, and in that sense, I think it just, it remains absolutely vital at the risk of sounding, you know, very old fashioned stuffy, et cetera, to go back to parties, go back to professional news organizations. The inside is not new. Tocqueville basically already said all these things in the 19th century, but very often we're looking in the wrong place when we talk about, again, the crises, crisis of, of, of democracy, because we don't pay enough attention to these intermediary institutions.
1: On the point of elections, you've been talking a lot about the sort of importance of, of being a, a good loser. Are you, would you say that you're advocating for a, let's say, a, a return to respectability politics? Is that what you're arguing for? Are you arguing for something different, a different way of thinking about
0: civility? So for me, questions of style and rhetoric, if you like, are overall pretty secondary. Um the problem with with um a lot of you know so-called right-wing authoritarian populist leaders is not that they kind of talk the wrong way or they're too crude or they're too rude or whatever it might might be um it really is more fundamental in terms of not ex- not ultimately accepting any other political competitors as legitimate that is you know, what they do when they're in opposition. And then when they are in government and have enough power, they will basically find ways of denying the legitimacy of the opposition they might still face in Congress, in Parliament, and, and so on. And that's, that's the core of it, that you basically, on one level, disavow a core element of democracy, namely it's in principle legitimate to have real turnovers in power. And if you don't accept that, then, you know, you're well on the way towards a certain type of authoritarianism. And in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's just misleading if we focus too much on, you know, what so-and-so has been tweeting and such-and-such a person wasn't very nice to somebody else, you know, in whatever, a, a television debate and so on. I'm not saying this is all totally meaningless, but it's not really where the action is.
1: Two examples that you you bring up, not in necessarily in in that context, but another context, and I wonder if you think that this fits the mold of sort of questioning, you know, the other party. Is Hillary Clinton said, you know, re- famously referred to Trump supporters as deplorables, and Mitt Romney claimed that forty seven percent of the electorate, you know, would never consider voting for him or for the Republican Party. Obviously, these were statements made in private company. But does this reflect the fact that maybe, you know, the non-populists still do have a similar, uh, similar perspective as the populists might?
0: So you're right to suggest that sometimes there can be a sort of fateful symmetry where those who oppose, broadly speaking, populist actors say, oh, what's wrong with them is that they exclude others. And then what do these actors do in response? Well, they exclude them morally, politically, completely. And that may, may sometimes be justified in the terms, in, in, terms of, in terms of actual leaders. So if you think of impeachment, that in a sense is also an exclusionary mechanism of sorts. But what clearly was so problematic about the, the infamous uh, Clinton speech was, in my view, actually not that she used the word deplorables. Again, this is too much being fixated on civility and saying nice things about people and so on. Uh, With all due respect, a lot of what certainly Trump said was deplorable and is deplorable. um, And that has to be said out loud. The problem was that she made all these generalizations about people that she didn't know. And she assumed, and that's the most problematic, problematic part, that they were, and that's her word, irredeemable. And that, I think, is, is again, a fundamentally wrong move in a democracy. We know, of course, that people don't change their minds all the time. You know, they don't go to, into an election and say, oh, let's sort of figure out what's on offer. You know, I'll start from scratch. You know, let's see what, you know, what the menu has for me, has for me today. Uh, we know that partisan identities are pretty fixed. And of course, under conditions like in the United States today, are probably getting more entrenched in all kinds of, in all kinds of ways. Still, people sometimes do change their minds because the same people don't always win elections. And if you kind of quasi-officially give up on this, and you basically say it's not even worth talking to these people anymore, people you don't know, where well, you don't know what would come out if you actually bothered to talk to them, offer them arguments, try to engage them in in certain ways, I think that's just fatefully, fatefully wrong. I'll just add, though, just to, to bring out clearly what, I, what I'm trying to suggest, doesn't mean that then if you talk to them um you know you have to sort of copy them i mean talking to populists or voters of populist parties doesn't mean you have to talk like them i mean this is then sort of sometimes the other extreme that especially if i may put it this way a certain type of liberal in in the us after 2016 went for in terms of okay you know we're going to interview every single every single, uh, you know, white male in in a diner in the Midwest. And then, you know, we kind of have an essentialized view of, you know, the so-called white working class and we'll take it from there and adapt to that. And parties in Europe have done this too, where they've sort of made, made defect or made concessions to what they kind of think is actually racism. I'm not advocating that. Um, I'm simply saying, don't give up on people. Don't declare them from on high as irredeemable.
1: There's a, a approach that I would say is very common in political science where you basically sort people into groups, uh, be it based on religion or ethnicity or gender, and you then try and pinpoint what their political views are. And then from there, you sort of put together a coalition, and that's a lot of how uh, political thinking works today. You are very critical of this, and I found your criticism actually extremely refreshing uh, and you've mentioned it already a couple times in this interview about the problem with grouping people. What is so problematic about grouping people? And what is it that representative democracy or a good democratic leader does when it comes to thinking about
0: groups of people? So democratic politics on one level will always be about groups. And that's not in and of itself pernicious. What I think is important to remember is that at least ideally, and I know this can sound rather idealistic on one level, that this remains an open process where different people can make, you know, what others and I in the book also call representative claims, where you say, look, you know, he is a, a sort of potential group of followers who's not being seen or whose uh, interests, identities, ideas, you know, are not really being being taken into account of and who have, have no voice. And, that needs to remain a real, a real possibility. Again, if, if that disappears, if people get the sense is totally closed, uh, you know, we're never part of this, a democracy is going to have, is going to have a, a problem. So you need to sort of keep open these channels of, of representation. And that can involve grouping people. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, what we just need to remember is that this is ultimately always a kind of creative and dynamic process. Um, nothing is objectively given um it's it's you know obviously i mean there are some overall circumstances which are pretty objectively objectively given uh in terms of you know we're not going to magically change energy prices now over overnight but in terms of how people view themselves there's a lot of room for creativity there and, and how you appeal to them and how you make themselves how do you make them see see themselves and that's also what the the term uncertainty that appears in the book is trying to bring out that, you know, democracy ideally does have this dynamic and open character. There are no guarantees that these processes will all turn out well. You know, sometimes they don't. But it's really important to basically keep and cultivate that kind of openness.
1: So just to shift gears a little bit, to move away from talking about politics and more towards discussing political philosophy uh, you speak a lot about Jean-Jacques Rousseau as this kind of theorist of democracy, but you're also very critical of his perspectives of democracy. What is it that you think Rousseau gets wrong, and what is it about his theory of democracy that makes him this kind of recurring, I don't want to say villain, but just a, a recurring um, blade that you <laughs> sharpened ag- up against? I don't know what the metaphor is.
0: <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting that you read it this way because I I don't think of myself as a kind of Rousseau phobe uh, character. I think he 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 still, in a sense, um, is a kind of yardstick for testing our intuitions about about democracy. I don't agree with um, scholars who have said, you know, this is a vision of totalitarianism. Uh, this is something that you know inevitably is incredibly dangerous. I think there is there are different ways of 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 reading Rousseau and and sort of keep, keep and also to kind of challenge ourselves on the basis of his particular vision of the of the social social contract, but having said that, you're of course right that my sort of validation, if you like of intermediary powers is not really reconcilable with his vision because he was so adamant that we shouldn't have. You know what he would have decried as factions as partial interests uh he would have been against even people kind of talking to each other about you know the potential visions of a of a common of a common of a common good um that to me is incompatible with representative democracy as we know it as again we should we should have it i think as we will have it i think still for for quite for quite some for quite some time um, and it it just problematically relies on sort of background assumptions, which are unrealistic in in certain in certain ways. But it also, maybe less obviously, does open up this possibility that we already touched on when we talked about not being a good loser in a in a democracy. If you think back to his seminal distinction between the general will, so the genuine you know common good of a of a polity. And then the will of all, which is sort of merely the aggregation of different interests, and which is not an authentic expression of the common good, so that bifurcation opens up precisely the possibility of losers saying, you "No, know, what ha- what just happened is illegitimate," um, and you know we actually are the only defenders of a of a proper general will, and there's a kind of more or less mystical people out there who we're going to appeal to and evoke in order to attack. The existing institutions. Now again, the existing institutions are not sacrosanct. Doesn't mean to say doesn't mean that we could never change the rules or anything of that, or anything of that sort. Um, but unless there is something horrendously wrong, the point is that at least for now you accept the results of a particular process. And that leaves you, you know, still to try again, also leaves you at liberty, hopefully, to advocate for changing the process and so on and so forth. But you don't evoke What ultimately is a kind of fiction of the general will, or as some right-wing thinkers like Carl Schmitt did in the 1920s, a kind of mystical people uh, who actually have a totally different will than what this sort of banal uh, mathematical process of, you know, counting votes, you know, that also these thinkers saw as overly mechanical and so on, had produced. We can only count votes. Ultimately, there's nothing else. We can we can do. It's not the only thing in a democracy, but if you fundamentally question that in the name of something else, again, I think you're well on the path to something that is going to look ultimately pretty undemocratic.
1: Without being too anachronistic, do you think it's uh, accurate to more or less accurate to describe Rousseau as a populist?
0: Not in my sense of that concept, which revolves around the notion that sometimes we have actors, leaders, parties who claim that they and only they represent what they often refer to as the real people or the the silent majority also. Um, it's it's not really the same because on one level, of course, we're so you know kind of broke with the whole idea of a particular form of representation. And he also would have he also I think would have would have been highly critical. Of a notion where you basically, again, without really engaging with people, end up saying, "Well, some people don't really belong here at all." I mean, if you and if you if you decide to join Rousseau's social contract, yes, there are certain obligations. You know, you can't have it both ways. You can't be inside the polity and still, you know, treat, basically behave as if you were still outside the polity and hold on to your natural national freedom. But these, again, these are different pathologies than what at least I think is happening with populism, which always involves a certain claim about about representation.
1: So just to br- briefly touch on a point that you made in your last answer, um, it's not something that you really discuss in the book, but Carl Schmitt is obviously very famous, probably most famous for his friend-enemy distinction. W- would you sort of say that the friend-enemy distinction doesn't really have a place in democracy, that we shouldn't really have enemies? Or you know, we have friends, but our enemies aren't necessarily our enemies. They're just our competitors.
0: So here I would agree with a number of other theorists of democracy, including ones who have written extensively about populism such that I don't agree with their conclusions. I'm only mentioning Chantal Mouffe, for instance, as, as an example, who basically want to hold on to some distinction such as enemy on the one hand and adversary on the, on the, on the other. And again, it's important to recognize that democracy is about conflict. The question is, how is conflict produced, represented, set up? Is it done in such a way that it's ultimately compatible with basic democratic values? And if you treat people as enemies, that's not going to be, that's not going to be the case. You can't really ultimately see somebody as a kind of partner in a conflictual, in a conflictual process where you might at least hold out the hope. That, that ultimately you know, you're going to strengthen the, the overall cohesion of, of, uh, of a polity. And again, maybe I should underline that this, this, this doesn't mean that you can have really tough conflicts. Um, that's entirely possible in a, in a well-functioning functioning democracy. This is not seeing the praises of, you know, bipartisanship is in and of itself a good thing and so on and so forth. Um, it really is saying there comes a line where you basically no longer respect the legitimacy Of the other contenders, and that's going to have pernicious consequences for a democracy.
1: So there is a, I would say, a a very popular theory uh, in uh, society today that we live in, let's call it, a post-truth era, and that the problem, the the biggest problem with democracy, is disinformation and uh, a lack of truth in media, Um, and uh, you know. you obviously in, in the book discuss that there are problems with disinformation, that, th- that this has real consequences, but you, you focus on something that, you, you quote Christopher Lash here, you say, uh, what democracy requires is public debate, not information. Uh, wh- what does Lash mean here and why is it that you think that public debate and not necessarily a focus on getting the capital T truth out there is important?
0: So, if we debate this challenge in terms of truth versus falsehoods, which is sometimes very close also to a technocratic discourse, where it's, you know, rational solution on the one hand and then, you know, crazy, supposedly populist ideas on the other, we simply overlook the fact that, as among other people, also Hannah Arendt pointed out, that politics is, democratic politics is a realm of judgment and opinion. The idea that we should simply, for instance, follow the science is deeply apolitical. Yes, again, science can reasonably set certain boundaries to our discourse, but it doesn't give us normative answers. There's still plenty of value judgments that have to be made in terms of how we respond to particular challenges where, you know, clearly science can help us, but is not going to give us a uniquely correct sort of policy, policy prescription. So I worry that this sort of moral panic about disinformation, which I'm not denying, you know, has 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 reasons that 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 are you know really there, um, has driven again liberals in the widest sense of this term to fall back on a sort of more or less technocratic um, discourse, a denial of legitimate conflict. You know, there can't really be any other opinions about about certain issues, um, and that's. I think, potentially actually reinforcing, perversely reinforcing certain populist phenomena because then populists can say, look, you know, these sort of more or less technocratic liberals, um, they think there's a singular truth out there or a singularly rational solution to every problem. You know, what do you mean democracy without choices, without debate, and so on? It doesn't mean that then these actors, you know, are saying these things in good faith necessarily, but it makes it easier for them to say something to citizens where they feel, yeah, it's true, it cannot be true that that you know for instance emmanuel macron is the only person who has a rational answer to the challenges in french society but very often he so suggested that and then said oh there are all these little crazy extremes around me which can be completely which can be completely ignored the other thing i would simply add is that we now know a little bit more than i think we knew in let's say 2016 2017 or so yes disinformation is real yes you can have all kinds of pathologies, but I think some of these sort of initial knee-jerk reactions where people said, oh, this is all best explained by technological innovations, it's all the internet, it's filter bubbles, echo chambers, and so on. Um, If I read the research of some of my, my colleagues, I learned that actually, yes, sometimes this exists, but it's been vastly overplayed, and what's more important, at least in the United States, the most prevalent pathologies, the fact that you do have a sort of self-enclosed right-wing media ecosphere where it's really not about news at all, it's about political self-validation, um, the creation of that predates the internet very significantly and has to do with regulatory decisions, You know, even as far back as the Reagan administration about radio, cable news, and, and, and so on. So the kind of, the kind of technological determinism or by now sometimes fatalism where you feel that you know we, we shifted from the Arab Spring showed that you know it's all liberation technology to now saying oh Facebook equals fascism only goes to show that a you know we don't really know a lot about this stuff because we're kind of flailing in terms of judgments we also lack real criteria for making for making judgments and we at least sometimes might really be looking in the wrong place in terms of what caused what and how we could sort of get a handle on some of these problems.
1: Your book is titled "Democracy Rules," and you know a lot of the first part of the book you spend uh, discussing uh, some of the important, let's say, call them rules that go with democracy: um, freedom of speech, association, assembly. A lot of things that in America go under the banner of First Amendment, um, and also balancing between freedom and equality uh, in. Your chapter reopening, you discuss uh, ways in which people can break these rules, sort of the uh, appropriate manners of breaking the rules. How does one in a democracy break the rules in an acceptable manner?
0: Going back to existing accounts of civil disobedience and what is sometimes more specifically um, presented as democratic disobedience is one way of doing this, of saying that sometimes you do need to draw the attention of your fellow citizens to what you see either as an injustice, so it's not directly about democracy, or also to systematic failings of of the democratic process. And, you know, they're fairly robust accounts of under which conditions you can do this. Again, it's important that you include some kind of account of what it means to lose or accept defeat under these conditions. So you you know you you might have a particular view, and you really try to convince your fellow citizens. But you know you have to be able to tell a story about under which conditions you actually say no. I may have been wrong. Actually, what I thought you know was a particular problem. Really, the vast majority of my fellow citizens, uh, it does. Just, they just they, they, they just don't agree. Um, and then you know you have to try something different and maybe stop breaking the rules and, and 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 maybe engage in more traditional coalition building. You know as you as you talked about earlier. So. These are some of the avenues one can one can one can think about. Again, I would underline the point that this is not about rules for the sake of for the sake of rules. Um, you know, especially pernicious thought when you have a German author, you know, kind of talks about rules for the sake of rules. Um, that's not the point. The point is that you need to be able to tie these rules back to basic democratic principles, and sometimes even going against them can be justified by appealing to these principles, and sometimes it can't. So it's very context dependent. It's very dependent on what kind of particular stories people then, you know, ultimately offer by way of justifications for rule breaking.
1: Why is it that you believe that we should have democratic hope despite the fact that there is so much pessimism out there today?
0: So hope is about possible avenues, pathways for change. If, if these aren't visible at all, if you know we really can't figure out anything, then in a sense hope has to go. Pessimism optimism, these are on one level estimations of probability. So I think the avenues are there. Do I feel particularly optimistic? No, but that's kind of besides the point. What the book tries to tries to strengthen is a sense of what these avenues might be. Clearly, there is a, a systematic problem in that some of the suggestions in the book, Uh, And here we actually sort of go back to Rousseau when you think about his famous paradox where he says, look, you know, to create the kind of polity I would like to see, it would already have to exist. We already would have to have the kinds of people who can do this kind of thing and we can't get out of this kind of vicious circle. That's also, I think it's fair to say, a problem for my approach because to kind of get to a point where, for instance, you could have a genuine repair of these intermediary institutions, what I call the critical infrastructure of democracy, a lot of change would have had to happen already. And it's always possible and not always wrong to fall back on, you know, what sometimes people then say, which is, oh, but we just need a sort of broad based social and political mobilization around around an agenda for change. That's, that's obviously right. But, you know, sort of this appeal doesn't get us terribly far in and of, in and of itself. So, that's in a sense where I see a genuine problem. But even if you don't have the immediate recipe for, oh, that's what we need to do tomorrow, it remains, I think, important to basically preserve our capacity for judgment, see what possible avenues for genuine democratic change remain open to us, and then also think more clearly about strategies and tactics of how to take them.
1: You end the book with a very brief mention of Edward Snowden, uh, and Edward Snowden famously leaked uh, private, secret military documents about uh, large spying operations being conducted by the NSA. Obviously, uh, this book came out uh, in 2021, and in recent weeks, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Edward Snowden has been somewhat of a defender of the Russian regime. Do you think that Snowden's actions are that uh, towards America are undermined by? his, uh, let's say, support of Putin?
0: So the Putin regime clearly is completely indefensible, but it doesn't follow that anything that anybody, including actually other, let's say, you know, the kinds of right-wing populists we talked about earlier, um, has ever said, you know, should automatically be categorized as we can totally discount it, and so on. I simply use the quote to underline that, again, there's sometimes a problem with saying that, oh, you know, the most important thing that's lacking is a certain kind of consensus or harmony or indeed trust, you know, trust our betters trust our representatives more or less automatically. Um, that can be an important element in, 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 in democracy, and there are actually, you know, legitimate secrets in democracy too. The point is, um, it's also about making an effort as opposed to being the sort of passive trusting recipient of political decisions, or thinking that oh, you know, I kind of go do my duty and vote, and that's sort of I've done my duty, and that's and that's that. So that's not a terribly deep or new point in terms of you know civic engagement, civic engagement uh, matters. But again, I think there's 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 sometimes a sort of communitarian, more or less kitschy uh, rhetoric around avoiding conflict, more consensus, being more trusting, and so on, which I think gets something about democracy on one level wrong, and that's what I wanted to counter.
1: I think this book is a fantastic introduction to thinking about democracy. And you have a lot of discussion, a lot of great quotes uh, from many different political thinkers and theorists. Uh, for someone, uh, you know, after reading this, if they wanted to engage more with the literature and democracy, are there any books or thinkers that you would recommend that people read?
0: Good question. So, I think, in a certain way, it's still worth our while to go back to what you know will strike many people as as incredibly boring and and, and outdated in certain ways, which is some of the kind of classic mid-century uh, political science literature in the United States. Not about oh, democracy is about elite competition and look how irrational voters are, but more about this creative and dynamic character of conflicts and how they're presented. So the person I have in mind is is Schatzschneider, who occasionally is still referenced as, as an important inspiration for, you know, what is often presented as also a particularly realist way of thinking about American politics. My point is there's more than there normatively than sometimes meets the eye. And there are observations about, you know, important characteristics of democracy which one can take in all kinds of different, all kinds of different, different, uh, different directions. And so, again, I know that this is not the kind of thing that will keep your listeners up at night when they start reading this, um, but I think there are still important insights there which we ignore at our own cost.
1: Are you working on anything new? Uh, you you're... By the way, also, to any readers, uh, this is a great companion book to Jan's uh, previous book, Uh, What is Populism? Uh, You really continue a lot of the discussion there in this book, Democracy Rules. Um, So to to re-ask the question, uh, are you working on anything to further your discussion here in Democracy Rules?
0: I'm working on something that also deals with a democracy, but from a somewhat different, though ultimately also related angle. I'm writing a book about what kind of, to put it crudely, what kind of spaces or buildings does democracy need? The kind of discussion that briefly came up when there was a debate around Trump's executive order about Federalist buildings having to have a certain classical style also came up in the context of January 6th when people sort of evoked the sacred nature of these of these buildings, and then also kind of you know rethought the meaning of the mall and the march on on the mall uh, in the in, in American political culture. I'm interested in exploring these questions, and um, clearly there is no uh, sort of completely clear cut story one can tell. Their spaces don't determine how we how we act, but sometimes I think we can make meaningful claims about how certain spaces and buildings can both facilitate but also represent democracy. In certain ways,
1: and is that a discussion specifically about physical spaces, or also about virtual spaces? Uh, obviously, the uh, the metaverse has become a, uh, a kind of the new the new slogan of, of big tech.
0: Ask me again in about three months. Okay.
1: Wonderful. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network, Jan. It was uh, great to talk My to pleasure. you, and we hope to have you again in the near future. Thank you. All right.